Hello. Welcome. Welcome to Women in the Word. My name is Vanita Jones, and I'm part of the teaching team, specifically Team Ephesians. Go team. The sports, the Jones family is a sports family. So when Deb came to us and said, we're going to have two teams this year, I was like, come on. This is awesome. The Jones family can make even eating dinner a competitive sport. And we have on occasion, many occasions as a matter of fact. I also want to say hello and welcome to all the women joining us at West Campus. I think it's so cool how there are these women in different parts of Fort Worth, in different towns, in different counties, in different states, watching us online, even in different countries with different backgrounds, different races, different traditions, all these differences coming together with one common purpose. We're going to study God's truths together. And not only going to study them, we're going to take these truths and apply them to our lives. So we look different when we leave here. Now, I hope you've noticed it, which I'm sure all of you have, that this week Paul is addressing the subject of unity. The unity between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. I guess we could probably describe it a little bit better by saying the lack of unity. Because apparently the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians weren't playing nicely in their sandbox. And these two very different groups of people, they're now united in Christ. They were to have one common purpose. And that purpose was that their lives are supposed to bring glory to God. And they were supposed to take that message they had received out to the rest of the world. And they were having a little bit difficulties in the details of how they were to be saved. You know, they say the devil's in the details. And that's what was happening here. The Jewish Christians were allowing the details of their former traditions and their former laws to bog things down. And because of that, guess what? They were less effective in what their purpose was to bring glory to God. Does that sound familiar to anyone out there at all? I dare say this very same thing is still happening today in churches all across the world. People are adding to and they're taking away from the gospel of Christ. And it's a very simple gospel of Christ. It's it's Jesus plus nothing. But in our humanists, we think we need to add something to it that makes it feel like we've deserved it and we've earned it. See, the Jewish Christians are forcing these Gentiles to conform to their traditions and laws in order to be saved. And I think that's just a little bit amusing. That mere men or even women would decide that they know a better way to be saved than the God of the universe. He created them for crying out loud. So they shouldn't add anything or take anything away. Jesus made it very clear about how to be saved. Look at John 3, 14 through 16 on your verse sheet. Jesus is addressing a question that's been asked by a Jewish Pharisee. His name is Nicodemus. You've probably heard of him. And Nicodemus was struggling with how to be reborn. He just couldn't quite grasp that. How can a man be reborn when he's as old as I am? And so he was wanting to be saved, but he just couldn't grasp the simplicity of the gospel. And so Jesus replies to him in John 3, 14 through 16. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus plus nothing. 
And the Jewish Christians were having a very difficult time reconciling these traditions they were used to with this wonderfully simple gospel of Jesus' redemptive work for us on the cross. Open your Bibles to Ephesians 3. And we're going to start to unpack how Paul addresses this issue of a lack of unity with the Ephesians. First, I want us to look at verse 1 straight off. He says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now let's stop right there. Whenever we read something that says, For this reason, what should be the first question we ask? For what reason? Why did he say what? What's going on here? He said, for this reason, what is that reason? We studied that last week, and we have to look back at Ephesians 2, 18 through 22 to refresh our memory. So just drop your eyes back a few verses, and I'm going to read so we kind of know where we're going from. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So there's our reason. See, remember last week we learned when Lynn taught that the Jews and the Gentiles were no longer separate, but rather they're united in Christ. And this was difficult for the Jewish people to understand because, because prior to this, when they talked about the, Jew, the Gentiles, they thought that they considered the Gentiles to be this. They were separated from them. They were excluded from citizenship in Israel. They were foreigners to the covenants that they had been promised through Abraham. They were without hope. They were without God. And so when the Jews even said the word Gentiles, it probably sounded more like this. Those Gentiles. <laughs> Lowest of the lows. How could they possibly be equal with us now? They're without hope. They're without God. And you know what? The Gentiles, I guarantee you, most of them probably weren't even aware they needed a God. They were living life just rocking along. And if they did think they needed a God, they probably already crafted it with their own hands out of stone or wood. So they had something that they could worship. So the Jewish Christians adding their own laws and the traditions to this new salvation idea was that they may have made the Gentiles feel like inadequate outsiders. They were on the outside always looking in, not quite able, qualified to be in with the Jews. And this difference was starting to create this chasm as big as a Grand Canyon. And they were having troubles even coming together on things. And at times, it seemed like they never would be able to come together. But Paul is about to address this great mystery of unity once again, in case they missed it, the last two times he addressed it. And then he's going to tell them how it's even possible to make this happen. So follow along. I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for, the Christ, for Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Jews, assuming that you have heard of the steward, I'm sorry, you Gentiles, <laughs> assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery is made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which has not made known, was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, and it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, 
members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the power, working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of these saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for year, ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he, had real, he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with, access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now remember back <clears throat> when Amy told us that Ephesians 1 was basically one big run-on sentence with a bunch of commas and semicolons? Well, guess what? Ephesians 3, 2 through 13 could have been placed between parentheses. As it appears, when Paul starts out, he's about to pray for these guys. Because he knows how hard this is going to be. And he says, for this reason, and then he launches in to the reason we discussed back in Ephesians 2. And he says, I, Paul, open parentheses, you could put there, assuming that you've already heard. And he goes in to tell them about how the, how the, the Jews and the Gentiles are to be of one. How God revealed these truths to him. And how he was called by God to take these truths out into the world, even if he was in prison. Close parentheses. It's like he was about to pray and then he just wanted to tell him one more thing before he prayed for him. And that discussion continues all the way through 13 in which he resumes his original prayer, which we're going to learn later on. Starts in verse 14. It's the same prayer he started back in verse 1. And as eventually we see, he's going to pray for power for these people. Because he understands completely this chasm, this huge gap between these two groups of people. The Jews and the Gentiles. And he knew that if these two groups of people were going to even come together, it was not going to be on their own power. It was going to have to be that they relied completely on the power of Christ working in them. It's the only way it was going to happen. See, this whole idea of two different people having a common purpose has played out for my husband and I over the last 18, 19 years. Our last of our four children are only 15 months apart. Khaki, when she was born... Casey was 15 months old. Now, I had someone tell me at the time it was like we had Irish twins. I'm not sure what that means. <laughs> had someone else tell me they were Aggie twins. I don't know what that means. All I know that it meant to me was that when, I, when Khaki, my girl child, was born, Casey, my boy child, was 15 months old. He was a toddler. Now, if any of you understand that at all, the first three years of my life, were, I was in a fog. I don't even remember if I potty trained them. It just had to happen. <laughs> Boys do it different than girls, and they eat different. They, everything is different. Everything is different. Little did I know that when that what the even crazier, more complex time was going to be having them as seniors in high school back to back. Boy and girl, high school seniors. Because I knew that whatever Casey taught me going through his senior year, was going to be totally different from my girl child, Khaki, when she went through it. Those experiences were not going to look at all like the other. But there's the most difference came down to when they made their college decisions. Flashback about a year and a few months to mid-August, Casey walks in the door after school and said, Mom, I applied to the University of Arkansas today. And he just moved on. 
I'm like, wait, why? Really? Why? And he said, well, they have a good football conference. We're a sports team, sports family. He said, there's a lot of fun things to do around Fayetteville outside, and they have a really aggressive pre-med program. Boom. Hits in. Done. It's over. Waiting on the letter to come back. He was already on his way to senioritis like he'd never seen before by the end of August. Now, flash forward. One year and one month. Khaki's a senior. Casey's gone to college. I have not heard one word from my, my girl child, Khaki. Not one word about college, and I'm trying to let this be her thing, kind of back off. So finally, about mid-September, I said, Khaki, have you made any decisions about college? And she went into a meltdown about how there were way too many colleges. How could you possibly ask someone to make these decisions? At this time in our lives, when we got all this other stuff, we have to make our grades, and she just melts down. So in order to kind of calm things down, I said, Khaki, do you, do you want to stay in Texas? Do you want to go out of Texas? Oh, I want to go out of state. I said, okay, well, that, boop, we're down just a few. I said, okay, now what? I said, what else is important? Well, mom, sports are important. You know I like gymnastics and I like baseball and football, so I wanted to have good sports. And she said, okay, well, thousands down to 100. I pull up the NCAA conferences on the computer. And I scroll through and I said, Kaki, look at this list. What, what out here stands out to you? And I am not kidding you. This is what she said. She looked at me very seriously. Mom, there are only certain colors I'm willing to wear. <laughs> yes, those words came out of her mouth. And she followed it with, Mom, it's a huge commitment. You have to wear it for years. You have to decorate it. You're obligated to wear it till you go to glory. Yeah. Not one word about that psychology degree she's wanting to get. None of that. I'm not going to check that out at all. I said, okay. So as I calmed myself down, thanking God that her daddy wasn't in the house. I said, okay, Khaki, what colors are you willing to wear? And she said, well, Mom, I will wear red, blue, purple, and black. This list came from here to here, and all of a sudden, within two hours, we had applications to Ole Miss, OU, and Arkansas. Done! Wow, what just happened there? I think the only thing that could have been crazier is if I would have asked Casey to help her make this decision process. That would have been like a chemistry experiment. But two different people completely. Two different genders Two different thought processes, one common purpose. They wanted to get a college degree. And it was something that was going to, it's going to set the course of their entire future. It's just like the Jews and the Gentiles. Different people, same purpose. It's a purpose that would set the course of their future as well. And Paul knew this was not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. In verses 2 through 13, we could summarize it like this. I, Paul, assume that you already know and have heard that God revealed to me that through the gospel, the Jews are fellow heirs with the Jews. They're your equals now. They share in all the same spiritual riches and promises that you have. They're members of the same body with the Jews. That means they're the members, the same body. It's the body of Christ. It's the church. It's us. All of the same body. And thirdly, they're going to be partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus along with the Jews. Look at Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 3, verse 29 in your verse sheet. It says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Fellow heirs, your heirs according to promise. There is no difference anymore. See, 
He's saying that the Jews and the Gentiles have been reconciled not only to, to, them, to God, but they're reconciled to each other. Their human birth had determined their racial distinctions, but their spiritual rebirth had united them as members of the same body. So now being a Jew or being a Gentile was neither an asset nor a liability because they were going to share equally and they were on common ground. And in verse 7, Paul reminds the believers in Ephesus that he was called to take a message to the Jews. That message he revealed to Paul was the gospel. It's the good news. It's, it's the good news that Christ died for their sins. And, that, and he knew that through the grace of God, he had received this good news. And because he had received this news, he knew he had a responsibility to take it and share it with others. And it's a responsibility he took very serious. In fact, it became his passion throughout the rest of his life. See, it not only revealed that there was a new relationship with God, there was this new relationship with, with each other, but it also revealed a new power that was available to each one of them. And it's the same power that we see working throughout Paul's life of his Christian walk through life. Look at verse 7 again. It says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. So that verse was kind of confusing to me. What, it's just kind of wordy stuff, and I didn't understand it. But I think what he's saying is that by grace, he was, he, he's saying by grace, not only God not only gave him a mission, a ministry, a calling, whatever you want to say, call it, but he also gave him the power he needed to accomplish what he had been called to do. See, the word working in verse 7 in the original text is energia, from which we get the English word energy. <clears throat> and one of the definitions of the word energy is available power that gives the capacity to do effective activity. And the word power used in verse 7 is dunamis in the original text, from which we get the word dynamic. And one of the definitions for the word dynamic is characterized by effective action. And the word, but now the word dynamis can also be translated as dynamite, dynamite, and I love this part. When you look up the definitions for dynamite, one of the definitions is something having a spectacular effect. I think that's awesome. Paul is saying that his service was initiated by the gift of God's grace. And it continued by the working of God's power. He was serving others effectively with God's energy, not his own energy. And we see that Paul had found his purpose. And not only found it, he acted on it. You know, I think the best way to describe purpose without action is like a Hallmark card. It's a bunch of lot, a lot of pretty words and, and flowery, sometimes powerful words, but really it's, it's stagnant if you don't share it with someone else. If you don't act on that purpose, it just sits there and it does nothing for anyone else. It's not what we were given that purpose. And we read on in verse eight, we see that Paul first had to do what he first had to do to effectively use the power Christ had been that had been made available to him. He had to see himself in proper perspective. He had to take an honest assessment of himself. And when he did that, he knew that he was flawed at best. He was definitely not qualified for this job. His resume came up really short. And he understood that he was a sinner. Look at what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 on your verse sheet. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. See, Paul knew he was a sinner. But it didn't stop there. Paul knew this as well. Look at verse sheet. Uh, he 
Romans 8, 1. It says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He knew he was a sinner, but he knew he was forgiven. And then he knew this third truth. Look at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He was a sinner, he was forgiven, and he was new. He was a new creation in Christ. He knew where he came from. He knew who he was now, and he knew where he was going to spend eternity. And in light of that, and in light of God's generous grace, Paul was right where he needed to be to effectively serve others. He was humbled before a holy God. And in Ephesians 3, 11 through 12, we see that Paul knew that God's plan of salvation through grace gave him the freedom to enter the presence of his heavenly Father with confidence. And then and only then was Paul ready to carry out God's mission. He had given him a purpose and he had equipped him with power to act on that purpose. And as we already know, and Paul points out to us in verse 13, he spent a great deal of time in prison. And it was because of his calling, because of his calling to, to take the word to the Gentiles. But Paul continued to praise God's, me- to proclaim God's message even when he was chained to a wall in a prison. See, in verse 13, Paul is urging the Ephesians not to be discouraged that he's in prison. Instead, he wanted his chains to lead them to Jesus, not cause him to stumble away from Jesus. He knew without a doubt that where he was at that moment was all being used by God to accomplish a greater plan. See, through Paul's suffering, he knew the Ephesians were being led to know Jesus more intimately as they experience the fullness of that salvation. If you have said yes to Christ, see the cross has cleared your path to God as well. Christ's redemptive work on the cross has provided you salvation and cleansed you from your sins. It's made you holy. And it enables you to also enter the presence of your Heavenly Father. And knowing where we come from helps us know who we are now and helps us know where we're going to spend eternity And in light of God's generous grace, that should, like Paul, should humble us in the presence of our holy God. And we should be filled to the very tip top with gratitude. So much that it bubbles out of us. No matter what situation is going on in our life. And I even mean the really good times as well. Not just the pits that you could be in. You may be living high on the hog and have plenty and have no needs at all. Even then, even then we should be humble before God. In the boring times of your life, when it seems like nothing's going on, we should be humble before God. And in those desperate times, those times when you feel like God just possibly couldn't be using this, we have to be humble before God. Because remember that God's eternal plan may look totally different than what we expect it to look like. Paul didn't allow his chains to hold him back from the responsibility of his calling to share the good news. He didn't allow his situations in plenty, in the boring, in the mundane, in the pit to keep him from taking others to the feet of Jesus. He used every situation. Like Paul, God has revealed his gospel to us and we too have a responsibility to share it with others in both our words and our actions. See, our purpose on this earth is to proclaim Christ In everything we do. That's our purpose. So we got to ask ourselves this question every minute of every day. 
Is this situation I'm in right now bringing Jesus, people to Jesus? Or is it leading people away from Jesus? No matter what we're going through. Follow along. I'm going to read the next few verses in Ephesians. I'm going to read 14 through 19. It says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, life, uh, length, height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God Paul's purpose had become his passion Paul's passion was for the Gentiles to fully grasp the the truth of the gospel and one of the ways Paul acted on that passion was that he prayed for these people he prayed for the Christians in these towns sometimes that's all he could do Sometimes he was chained to a wall in a prison where all he could do was pray. And he was not going to waste a minute of that time. And he also wrote letters to them. Chained to the walls in prisons, he wrote letters and he prayed for these Christians. You see in verse 14, Paul finally gets around to that thing he initially set out to do back in verse 1. And that's praying for the Christians in Ephesus. And he's going to specifically pray for four different things. First, he prays for spiritual power. He's praying that they will have an inner spiritual power. Now, when he's talking about power here, he's not talking about that the going gets tough, the tough get going. He's not talking about our self-discipline or our self-talk or positive thinking or any of this stuff, turning over a new leaf or, like I always tell my kids, get a grip on yourself. Like when they're in khakis having their meltdown, get a grip on yourself. It's not even that kind of power. It's so much more than that. See, it's something of that on our own we can't even accomplish. It's a work of God from his spirit to our spirit. And it allows us to live our lives through his strength and not our strength. Now, I don't know about you, but I am very acutely aware of how I ought to live and how I actually live. Anybody else have that going on? I know this is what I'm supposed to do, but most of the time this is how I'm actually doing it. But you're also like me. I long to close that gap. I want the power to to live like like God wants me to live. But sometimes it just seems so far away from me. But see, what Paul is saying is we have that power in us. We have the power of Christ. It's available to us. It's already sealed with us, inside us, if we have Christ. The second thing that Paul prays for the Ephesians is that that they would have a deep faith. Now, the faith that Paul is praying for is not the faith that, con- that brings salvation. And we know that because when we look at Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, look on your verse sheet. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls them saints. That means these are already Christians. These are the believers in Ephesus. So he's not talking about a faith that would bring them salvation. He's talking about a faith that comes with their salvation. It's the kind of faith that comes when we accept Christ as our Savior, and then Christ takes up residency in our heart. He moves into our heart. Simply put, it's Christ being at home in your heart. I read something uh, called My Heart, Christ's Home. It was written by Robert Munger, and he says this about this very thing. He said, the Christian is like a house through which Jesus goes room to room. 
In the library, which is the mind, Jesus finds trash and all sorts of worthless things, which he proceeds to throw out and replace with his word. In the dining room of appetite, he finds many sinful desires listed on a worldly menu. In the place of such things as prestige, materialism, and lust, he instead puts humility, meekness, love, and all other virtues for which the believers are to hunger and thirst. He goes through the living room of fellowship where he finds many worldly companions and activities and then through the workshop where only worthless toys are being made and into the closet where our hidden sins are kept and so on and so on throughout the entire house. Only when he has cleaned out every room, every closet, and every corner of sin and foolishness can Christ actually settle in and make himself at home in our hearts. He's constantly doing a work, spring cleaning within us. So to have Christ dwell in your hearts by faith means that he's in, at home in every corner of your life. What Paul was praying here is that Christ would settle into their hearts, into the hearts of the saints in Ephesus, so that they could move from this very superficial relationship with Christ and into this ever-deepening fellowship with their Savior as they allowed him to do some spring cleaning in every corner of their lives. And the third thing that Paul is praying for the believers in Ephesus is that they would have abundant love. Not just any old kind of love, not puppy love, not Valentine's Day card love, not I love cake love, not any of that. It's a divine love that becomes the dominant characteristic of our being. It becomes our reason to exist. It becomes the motivation for all of our experiences and all of our relationships. Look at Paul's letter to the Romans in uh, chapter 5, verse 8 on your verse sheet. It says, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in 1 John 3, 1, he says this about, uh, we hear this about God's love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason that the world doesn't know us is that it did not know him. And then in Zephaniah 3.17 it says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who saves. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. See, this kind of love is only possible when we first understand that God loves us unconditionally. He accepts us as one of his own children, and he rejoices over us with gladness. This truth should blow your mind. I mean, the very God that created everything, the heavens, the world, and everything in it, he loves you, and he rejoices over you with gladness. That should blow your mind. How could you not have a smile on your face? Just knowing those things. These are love notes that be on, should be on sticky notes on your mirror that you look at every day when you're getting ready. So that when you look in that mirror and you think, oh, look at all these imperfections that the world is telling me we need to get creams for and fix and do all this stuff for. Instead, we're focusing on how our Heavenly Father sees us and who our new identity is in Christ. See, when we're able to grasp, grasp those truths... Then and only then are we able to love others and serve others effectively because now we know who we are in Christ. And Paul's final prayer for the Ephesians is that they would experience the fullness of God. 
I don't know how many times I've heard the words fullness of God and never truly understood what that meant. What does it mean to be the, have the fullness of God? See, I think Paul is praying that they would be satisfied with God. They would be content. They wouldn't be restless. In, in plenty, they were satisfied with God. In the boring, in the mundane, they were satisfied with God. And in the pit, they were satisfied with God. Look at Ephesians 4, 11 through 13 on your verse sheet. Paul is writing to the believers in Philippi and he says this. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I now know... I now, sorry, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Satisfied and content with where God has you. Now, have you noticed that all these things seem to kind of build on each other? They seem to, he says that when, when we accept Christ as our Savior... We're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and Christ moves into our heart. And when Christ moves into our heart, he starts to do a little bit of spring cleaning. And and he does some spring cleaning. We begin to grow closer to him because we know who he truly is, and we know how much he truly loves us. And then when we know how much he truly loves us, we become confident and secure in who we are, and we can love others and serve others. And when we love and serve others, guess what? We're bringing glory to God. And we, when we are bringing glory to God, guess what we're, we're experiencing? The fullness of God. It's like a circle. Now, there are times in my life, I have to admit to you, I don't feel like I'm feeling the fullness of God. Sometimes I feel like I'm kind of empty. I may feel restless. I may have situations going on that I may not actually be proclaiming Christ. And it's good for me every now and then to stop and ask myself these three questions. I ask myself, am I growing and becoming more like Christ? I don't know. Sometimes I may not be. And if, I, if the answer to that is no or I'm not really sure, then I need to dive into his word. And I need to ask, the Holy, I need to ask my Heavenly Father to stir the Holy Spirit in me. Make me so aware of that a power that he put in me and, and, and let Jesus start moving through me again and, and cleaning out those areas that I need a little spring cleaning so I can grow to, more, to look more like Christ. And secondly, I have to ask myself, does Christ love me? Does, does Christ love for me? Does it motivate me to serve others? Sometimes when I ask myself that, I'm not even loving or serving others. It's not even on my agenda for the day. Sometimes I may be loving and serving others, but my motives are so messed up. It's all about me. It's all about what I'm going to get out of it. It's all about how I'm going to look when I'm doing it. It has nothing to do with Christ loving me. And the third thing I have to ask myself, am I content with God no matter what's going on in my life? I can be completely honest with you. The worst time for me is when I have plenty. When we're high on the hog... It's kind of hard to remember, wait, am I content with this or do I want more? Do I want more? Do I want more? Am I willing to give some of that up for somebody else? But when I'm in the pit, it's, pretty, it's usually easier for me to turn and ask him to help me. <clears throat> I don't know about you, but I have to ask myself these questions frequently. Frequently to kind of get myself back to where I need to be. So that I can, I can have the glory and the power of God moving through me. 
Because through the immeasurable power of Christ, that is when we're able to experience the fullness of God. We can live that abundant life where we're not restless. We're not craving something else. Follow along. I mean the last couple of verses of Ephesians 3, starting with verse 20. It says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ. Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. I love this about Paul. Paul can be in the deepest theological discussions about salvation and, and all these different things, God's deep, deep love for you, and all of a sudden he just bursts out in spontaneous praise. And that's exactly what he does here at the end of his prayer. He forms this doxology to the Lord. I hope that each one of you took the time to do that this week. Because I think it's a great way to stop in the middle of whatever's going on in our life and just write down how God is active in everything that's going on in our lives. And what it does is it, it takes our focus off all of our stuff, good, bad, or boring. It takes it off of that, and it puts it squarely onto him. That's where it needs to be at all times. And by praising his character, we're able to trust him. And trust him knowing that he knows best what we need in our future. Paul does that very thing when he praises God for his sovereignty, his omnipotence, and his glory. See, he praised God for his sovereignty because Paul knew that God in his sovereignty could do whatever he willed. But he also knew that God in his sovereignty could answer his prayers far beyond anything he could even think of asking. And that's awesome because in his sovereignty, he knows our future. And he knows our needs. He knows our needs before we ask for them. And then Paul praises God for his great power. And it's, a power, it's that same power that create, he created the world with. It's the same power that he brought two very separate different people together as one and called them the body of Christ, the church. And it's the same power that raised his only son from the grave. Ladies, that's the power that's at work in us. It's there. We just have to use it. And Paul knew that with Christ as his power and purpose, his life was going to glorify God. I don't know about you, and I don't know if you're, I know we're not, none of us are in a prison, but maybe you're in a prison that is, is your, um, it's your health, or it's your finances, or it's a bad, bad relationship in your family, or, or maybe you have this sin that you just cannot seem to get a grip on. See, whatever that is, Paul's saying we have the power in us to overcome all of this. And we should not waste one minute of that situation. We should use it to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. The truth that Paul knew is the same for us today. <clears throat> when we're filled with the power of God, we're able to glorify God as we love and serve others. So don't let your life be like a Hallmark card. Don't just let your purpose be some beautiful words written in the front of your Bible and, the power, and all these beautiful words about all the power that you have in Christ. Let these things stir you into action. Act on your purpose so that you too can live a life that glorifies God and then you're going to experience the fullness of God. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just um, thank you for your words. I thank you for 
Your nugget's a truth that um, just embedded, become embedded in our hearts. Father, I pray that we would not be stagnant with our purpose, that we would so rely on your power that we become like dynamite, that we are effectively acting on your purpose and showing your love to others. In Christ's name I pray all this. Amen.